Hi guys, this is John McGann from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland and I'm here with my co-host Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we've created the podcast Control the Coronables, which includes some of the top players from around the world. Our objective is very simple. We want to be able to educate, entertain and energize the tennis community during this very difficult period that we're all going through. Hope you enjoy our next podcast. Welcome to episode 21 of Control the Coronables. I'm Dan Keenan. It's a special episode, this one for me. Uh, Ian Barclay, coach of Pat Cash when he won Wimbledon in 1987. You may remember Pat beating Ivan Lendl in the final and running up into the stands to the the white moustache, white-haired Ian Barclay. Um, we move on 30-plus years, and Ian looks no different. <laughs> In between that, as well as the great work he did on the Pro Tour with Pat Cash and many more, he moved to the UK, where he basically ran British tennis out of Bisham Abbey for a few years and looked after some of our bright up-and-coming prospects, including myself. So I'm proud to say Ian, Ian was my coach for four years. Um, he's, he's an amazing man. Um, he's dedicated his life to tennis. He continues to. He's 81 years old, and he's still on court seven days a week. Uh, his enthusiasm is infectious. His opinions are strong, but his philosophies are proven. Uh, it's, it's a real honour that I got to sit and talk to Barkers, as many of us know him in the, in the world of tennis. Sit back, enjoy whatever you're doing. Um, it, it, it's an amazing podcast. It's an amazing listen. And please do go on to and, and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, leave a comment and a, a review. Uh, our numbers of viewings have been fantastic, but uh, the feedback has been even better. So let's keep getting these podcasts in the right hands so that people can get the rich learnings from them. Over to Ian Barclay. Barkers, how are you doing? Lovely to have you on the show. Great, Dan. Old man these days, hit 81, but still in there, still coaching seven days a week and trying like hell. Nothing's changed, nothing whatsoever. Barkers, you, you look exactly like you did when I first saw you 25 years ago. You know, oh, you I don't think so. Not from this way forward, <laughs> looking forward. I don't, I, I don't think I'm as good as what I was in those days. But just a, a, quick, a quick little introduction to those listening. Um, most people, certainly in Australia and the UK, will know Ian Barclay. But around the world of tennis, you know, kind of 1987 is the the year where, where people saw you, I suppose, for the first time on the world stage when Pat Cash won Wimbledon and ran up into the stands to, to give his coach a big hug. You know, and that was back in the day where they didn't have a, have a perfect route into the stands as well. Um, and then from there, Ian spent a long, long time um, at the LTA National Centre in the UK at Bishop Abbey, you know, where he had great success. Um, and then I'm proud to say that he was my coach for, for four years, which is probably your biggest achievement, Barker, is that you managed to keep me on a tennis court during some difficult, some difficult adolescent years. You, all those adolescents, for every one of them, 
they were difficult years. People think the girls have problems. I believe boys have more problems going through adolescence. So how, so how are you doing? How's, how's things in Australia? Well, things in Australia, um, we don't seem to be able to produce the juniors that we used to be able to. Uh, development has sort of fallen by the wayside. And I'm bitterly disappointed that not enough money goes down the bottom. You know, the, when you look at the pyramid, everything's up the top again. And when I came back from the UK, um, I thought we've got to change this. We need all the money at the bottom to build a, a very strong base. And uh, it didn't quite happen. I did start a program called Super Tens where I decided that if I could get enough little ones, the age of seven, eight, nine and 10, we'd build a great base for the future. But unfortunately, it worked magnificently for oh, five, six, seven years. And now it's fallen by the wayside as, not completely, it's still going, but it doesn't have the clout that it used to have and we're not producing. And are you, are you doing anything with Tennis Australia? Are you working with the Federation at all? I was up until about uh, 18 months ago. Okay. And then I stopped because I couldn't get the finance into Super 10s and all the things I wanted. It was money was going elsewhere. Right. And I'm, you know what I'm like. I'm the greatest believer that if you don't get kids perfected by the time they get to about 12, 13, 14, you don't have much chance. And my beliefs are a bit different to everybody else's. You know, you don't get anything. You only get out of this game what you put into it. No, absolutely. Nothing else. And Barkers, what do you mean by what do you mean by perfected? Is that a from a technical point of view? From a, what what point of view are you talking about with that? Well, I've got younger and younger, better and better, bigger and bigger, and yeah. you don't have long. Believe you me, I yeah. still believe that probably a thirteen-year-older, I can generally pick whether they've got a very very bright future or not. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm the greatest believer as you remember, that if your defence is not as good as your offence, you won't get there because when the Australians get to Europe and they have to play on clay for the first time, yeah. they can't understand why the Europeans and everybody else hits the ball so much harder than them yeah. because they've had to develop the pace on the slow clay. Yeah. Whereas we've got so many fast surfaces in this country. Yeah. It doesn't work that way for us. And I remember taking the first Australian team away in the, you know, the late 70s we got absolutely belted right. and I took uh, all national champions who I thought were fantastic. Yeah. But we corrected that and the next year we went back and we were unbelievably lucky. We took all before us. But to get it right, oh man, oh man. Yeah. You can remember at Bishon Abbey, we'd get out on the clay, we'd be working like, like hell. We worked so hard and then the rain would come down. What would happen? Straight indoors again. Yeah. Next day, out there for an hour, Three quarters of an hour, the rain would come down back indoors. And that surface, if you remember, was like grease lightning. I've never played on a faster court in my life. Yeah. And going from one, the slowest in the business, to the quickest, I can remember the injuries, you know, broken fifth-minute yeah. parcels and all sorts of problems, saw this, saw that, having to give guys days off to get the soreness out and having hack, if you remember. Greeny, uh, they were fantastic with the, with the boys and the girls. They were marvellous. Yeah. And without them, we couldn't have done it. Absolutely. Hack used to be able to pick every time. 
what was wrong or what was going to happen. And he checked on every one of you every day. Yeah. He was a genius. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, we all we all certainly developed some decent hands on those Supreme Courts, though. That was one, that was one <laughs> thing that we had to have. <laughs> maybe, maybe not some of the other things. Barkers, what I'd love to do, and this is actually one, I think people will love to hear it, but two, as, as long as I've known you and as close as I am to you, I still don't really know your full tennis journey of how, how you got into it. So if I take you back all those years ago, how, how did tennis start for you? Well, I started uh, late because all I wanted to do was play Australian rules football like every Victorian boy, and especially if you're born in Melbourne, which is like the sporting centre of the world, we believe. We have so much going on in this, this city. It's unbelievable. Anyway, uh, I got badly hurt. Um, broke the coccyx on my spine when I was 15 and started to play tennis. Right. They told me no more contact sports. Right so I started playing tennis, did quite well, not early, but I won my first open tournament when I was 17. Head was that big, I couldn't fit through a door and away we went. And I'd started working as a commercial artist at this point of time, which didn't allow me much time off, but my boss was quite willing to let me uh, coach a couple of nights a week, yeah. off work very early. And I started very young, you know, my first coaching lessons I gave when, he, when I was about 20. Right, okay. And I had a, a great upbringing in the coaching game because I was surrounded by some great players, guys that had gone to the, you know, as far as the semi-final of Wimbledon, Dr. John Fraser, uh, some fabulous players I played pennant with later on. Um, and I learned a lot from the older guys. We couldn't afford coaches in those days. They were, nobody had any money. The only way it worked, you know, I was quite clever. My father found out that I was a very naughty entrepreneur <laughs> and uh, that I started running the prices at a race meeting of a Wednesday and wagging school. <laughs> and I got into big trouble with the law. And, uh, the only way to earn a quid in those days was to do something illegal. You yeah. couldn't make it working. Anyway, one thing led to another. Um, and eventually I decided that I wanted to coach full time. A lot of things happened. Yeah. I won't bore you with those things, but I was desperate to get out into the fresh air, get away from behind a desk with a sable head, brush which had three hairs in it doing fine work the whole time and I found out that when I first started I just loved it yeah. and I studied very hard I would sneak off to Kuyong all the time get under the fence couldn't afford to pay to get in um, and guys in my time did it the hard way yeah and we benefited really benefited from that uh, yeah. it was a super way of uh, developing um, nobody was born in my day with a silver, oh, a silver spoon in their mouth. There were a few, no. but most of us were pretty rough and tough. You know, after the, even 10 years after the Second World War, things were pretty hard and to afford a tennis coach was very difficult. Later on, um, 21, 22, 23, I had a few coaching lessons and that made one heck of a difference to meet up with 
all of the great players in the state of Victoria. And that was wonderful. Our A grade pennant uh, here in this, our, our top competition was so strong. Nearly everybody had played Wimbledon, those could, that could, could afford to go to Wimbledon, six weeks on a boat. And I most certainly couldn't afford that. Yeah. Uh, if you can imagine what it was like. So I just played the minor tournaments. I was very lucky that I was able to win a few and that enabled me to get into the Australian Open, uh, wow. which was just a wonderful experience. I won a, won a round and then got the belting of my life from one named Roy Emerson. Right. And uh, <laughs> of course he went on to win it the way he won everything wow. in those days. So I got away to a flying start. But I loved my coaching and uh, eventually I was appointed tennis coach at Heatherdale Tennis Club where they had a wonderful, they had wonderful rapport with the kids. The committee were unbelievable. Yeah. And I was able to bring them in left, right and centre. The club just went from nothing to, I mean, I had a waiting list of about 200 people because I was luckily very, very lucky to have six national champions at the club yeah. and everybody wanted to, who's this guy? You know, he's producing yeah. these guys left, right and centre. What's he doing that's different to the rest? Uh, so we'd get all these visits from people wanting to have a look, see what was going on. And then I decided that I had to travel with the likes of Pat Cash, Mark Hartnett, the Minton sisters, everybody who'd been super successful in Australia. And we formed a group which uh, called, um, it was called Match Maker Tennis Champion here. And we had a lot of people who contributed a lot of money. So off we went to Europe, we played the Avenue Cup in Milano, got belted. The next year we came back and Mark Hartnett won it. Pat Cash said to me, I'll win this next year. The eight quarter-finalists all made top 10 and Pat won it beating Stefan Edberg in the final. Wow. Um, so at that point of time, I said to Jackie, and you can remember her well, um, I said to her, this lad's going to win something big one day. His performance today was just unbelievable to carry Mark in the final of the doubles because Mark had unfortunately had a very bad back injury and hardly... Uh, Played very little again after that, which was a tragedy. So he did go back and he won it. He was true to his word, just unbelievable. I started with him, you know, as a real youngster. He was only 11. He came to join with all the mob at Heatherdale Tennis Club. And he was just outstanding. Uh, he had something different, tough. Yeah. Great champion footballer. Right. Uh, you know, Australian rules footballer. Tough as they come, his father had played for one of our major league clubs for many, many years. And he was just the type I was looking for. He wouldn't take no for an answer. There's no way no. I can even remember him cleaning up my oldest son in a football match one day. That's how tough he was. He was, my oldest son was his best mate. Right. And best man and godfather to the kids, but he still cleaned him up. <laughs> Mark, there's a, co a couple of things, a couple of things to pick up on is, what were you doing different? Because your, your track record from, from all the way through your coaching has been amazing. All the way through. So, so people were right. 
people were right to go be curious you know it doesn't it doesn't just happen so what were you doing different i think um i concentrated so much on basics um and i'd got gotten used to the fact that uh if you had a weakness and somebody was hiding behind a tree, it could be a German, a Russian, anybody, they would work it out with some very clever coaches yeah. and they would break it down very quickly. So I would never send anybody into anything that had an obvious weakness. It might be tactical, yeah. it might have been technical. The technical problems are the major ones because if your basics aren't great, they'll get you, believe you me. Yeah. And the other thing that I was very big on was the teaching of defence. I learned that the first year I went away. Yeah. But uh, if you couldn't defend to perfection, oh. you got no chance. Yeah. And most of my kids, all of the ones, one after another, I was able to win national 12s. Like we did at Bisham, all the boys won the national championships, yeah. which was fantastic. And I was adamant that if you couldn't turn defence into offence, you didn't have much of a chance. Yeah. Admittedly, they didn't hit the ball the way they hit it today. It's a different game. I mean, probably the average height then was about five foot ten, five foot eleven. Now it's probably six foot four, and we've probably got a hundred guys in the ATP who are over six foot six. Yeah. I mean, they're they're one foot taller than what we had in my day. I mean, Rod Laver, Ken Rose. Well, I'm born the same year as Rod Laver, five right. foot seven. Right, okay. So six foot seven today. It's yeah. unbelievable. And is that the big difference you think nowadays from from back even we're talking talking what thirty years ago? What what do you think that the, the do you think it's the power that the, the, the athleticism? Well, the power has just gone up and up yeah. and up. The athleticism for the big guys, nearly every guy now has a footwork and fitness trainer. Yeah. Uh, some of the biggest guys move like uh, champion sprinters. Um, unbelievable, some of them. Don't lose balance, uh, can turn on a threepenny bit. You know, they can do all of these wonderful things which a little guy could do, say, 30 years ago. Yeah. So all of that's changed. But the power output has become absolutely amazing. I mean, yeah. I can't believe. And these guys seem to be serving out of a tree the whole time. Yeah, yeah. So the important thing has become the return to serve. I mean, if you yeah. can't get that back, when somebody's bombing you all day long, and you can remember probably at the end of the match, the one point that won it for you, which was a great return, or yeah. you managed to scramble it back somehow, and your opposition made mistakes. Yeah. I mean, the outright winners, I mean, when you look at Djokovic, the most freakish, Defender I've ever seen in my life. It doesn't matter how hard you hit it to the corner. He'll do the splits, but he'll get it back to within a foot of the baseline every time. So you've got to start again. So then you're forced to hit it even bigger. So you make an error. Yeah. And uh, he is a freak, an absolute freak. Sometimes I like to sit there and just study his defence. I don't worry about the rest. Yeah, yeah. I just watch what he does. It is so good. And people don't, you know, people really don't appreciate that side of tennis. Yeah. And that's where I think I've been so successful. If you couldn't slice back behind, yeah. deep into the corner, look out, I'd be after you. Yeah. And if you couldn't turn, and you didn't know how to turn defence into offence, look out, I'd be after you. Yeah. After you straight away. Remember how bad I was with that, you know, 
Yeah, get absolutely. it back no matter what happens. At least make him play another one. I mean, you mightn't be the quickest in the world, yeah. but try. Yeah, yeah. Just the mistakes are made quite often. Yeah. Amazing how often a guy makes a mistake off the easiest pushback you've ever seen in your life and they hit it out because they want to hit one better than the one before, which should never have come back, but it did. I think that's changed the game, but it's the speed of the guys. Yeah. When I look at the top 20 guys, they are all just magnificent athletes. Incredible. The athleticism is incredible. And the work they put in yeah. to achieve athleticism at its highest is unbelievable. And is there anything in the game that you think has stayed a constant throughout all of the different eras? Um, no, not really. I think uh, because they hit it so much harder today, yeah. and it's hard to realise, I believe that the girls, 14-year-old girls, hit it as hard as what I did or my era. Yeah. I mean, some of the girls, six foot one, six foot, some of them are. Yeah. And the longest levers with the guys and the girls that you've ever seen today, and any biomechanist will tell you that the longer the lever, the greater the power. Well, I believe that. I've got some six-foot girls who just can hit the hell out of the ball. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying they always hit it in. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> it becomes a big problem because too many kids are taught today. You'll see them basket-fed and the coach will stand there just hitting balls and telling them to hit the hell out of the ball. Well... You can't hit the hell out of the ball if you can't hit it within six inches of a corner in the base, on the baseline and make somebody work. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to hit the hell out of it and hit it short, it's going to come back with interest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's where the, the game has changed dramatic, dramatically there. So what I do most of the time is I'm saying not deep enough, not deep enough, not yeah, deep yeah. enough. You can't yeah. hurt anybody leaving a ball short today. These guys and these girls, leave it short, it's all over. You won't win the point, believe yeah. me. And where does it go next? I don't think... Well, what, we, what, we, what happens when they're all seven foot tall? That's what I'm wondering. <laughs> exactly. How long will the levers be? Yeah. You know, we've had so many people talking about altering the uh, dimensions of a tennis court, especially yeah. as a service box, yeah. making it shorter. As they get towards seven foot, yeah. uh, people are worried and worried that the service becomes so dominant that it's spoiling the game. Well, you don't see many rallies and most guys feel that the net's got rabies. They never go in. They'll yeah. just sit back the whole time and try to cane the forehand or the backhand and attempt to hit a winner no matter where the ball is. And then they make the mistakes. But I wonder what the next step is. Believe you me, will somebody, somebody come up with something that's crazy, some theory? Yeah. No. They'll just keep improving. They'll just keep yeah. getting bigger. And they yeah. just keep hitting it harder. There's yeah. no other way. Absolutely. So at this point, Barkers, I have to turn to Pat Cash. Um, you know, what a journey. How, how old was Pat Cash when you started working with him? 11. That's amazing. Because I think what's, and again, this is for, for the listeners, I think one thing that's so unique about you, there's, there's got to be very few, if any, coaches that have taken a player from age 11 all the way through the developmental years to, to winning Wimbledon, you know, to, to, to have gone that full journey is amazing. 
That's why my daughter rang me as soon as it was finished and said, Dad, I could see the tears rolling down your face. Well, I didn't perspire, as you remember, much. I was always super fit, super skinny. Um, But the emotion, because when he was a little wee fella, he used to ask me, one day, Mr B, do you think I can win Wimbledon? This happened every week. And I said, of course I think you can win Wimbledon. But you only get out of it what you put into it. You'll you'll have to work so hard. And he would say to me the whole time, I'll do whatever you want. So work he did. And he was one person that, you know, when the bell rang to finish, yeah. no, he wouldn't finish. Right. Some more on this, please, Mr. B. I need to get this perfect. Please, yeah. another basketball. And yeah. that's what it... Even when he was hitting the ball so well yeah. that it didn't matter. He was just on top of the world, on top of his game, happy, uh, just wanting to win no matter what happened. And the attitude was one of, I must be spot on with everything, every single thing, perfection, yeah. what he sought, the same as me. So we just worked and worked and worked. He was just a great pupil. And, and obviously you can't ever say this person's going to win a Grand Slam, but but what age? What at what age would you say that you can look at someone and say they are special? And did you think that about Kashi at age eleven? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. I was adamant. Only to my wife when he. Uh, yeah. I didn't say anything to anybody else, but I can remember saying to Jackie after the final of the doubles and the Avenire Cup, I just said to her, "This boy's going to win something special." I've never yeah. said he was a year younger than everybody too. Right. This boy's going to win something special. And I remember Jackie being, you know, you remember very well saying to me, don't get too carried away. There's a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. And I knew that, but I knew how hard he would work no matter what happened. And, uh, you know, if you ever want to look at somebody that achieved the maximum by hard work, even with the injuries yeah. that he sustained and even with the problems, and there were always ups and downs and Pat was pretty fiery. He could get in into trouble with officials. Yeah. But the trouble was worth every bit of it, believe you me. He could trash a racket every now and again. That didn't worry me as long as it, when he got back on the court, he was going flat out. It's never worried me, even with you guys. I mean, a lot of people would say, <laughs> what are they doing? And I said, well, I don't mind that so much. I would rather have that than them sulk in a corner over something. Yeah and not give 110% the whole time. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's actually, I spoke to, I spoke to a few of the boys before this, and uh, I, think it was, I think it was Chinky said, you have to ask Barkers about the time that, that Kashi, you'd done, you'd done Pat's rackets and you'd weighted them all up and you'd got them, got them perfect, got the pallets perfect, and then he smashed six rackets in one day. Is that, is that true? Is this story true? Yeah, that was at the US Open when he lost in that marathon to Ivan Lendl. He got into the tunnel and I knew what was going to happen. Yeah. In those days, they had pipes running along the top of the tunnel. He just went, smashed one, smashed it. And then we had to get rackets from the UK because he had a Slazenger contract in those days. And that was the greatest story of all time when I had to go to Kennedy Airport to collect the rackets. And the taxi wouldn't take me in there. It was too rough. They wouldn't go near the place. 
So I had to grab a racket which was broken and run all the way from the taxi, pick up his rackets, run all the way back, get them balanced up. It was uh, it was a nightmare. There were all these stripped cars. No house had a windows in it. I was absolutely terrified. But by God, I could run. I tell you, as soon as I saw somebody coming my way, I just took off. And I got back safely. I yeah. Never forget it. Never forget it. Yeah, that was right. Pat uh, could trash a racket, believe you me. But you knew that as soon as he went out on the practice court or the match court, he'd give 110%. That's yeah. all that mattered to me, as you remember. Absolutely. I didn't care what you did as long as you gave your all. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and nine, so 1987 Wimbledon, obviously a, a very special, a special run. What are your main memories of, of that and how he was, I guess, before the tournament? Did you feel he was ready to, to, to win the big one at that time? Well, I'd never seen him hit the ball so well. I mean, yeah. I was pelting volleys at him from the closest range you've ever seen, hitting balls as hard as I could possibly yeah. get it going, you know. And he would just hit it in the right spot. Strange thing about Pat, I can remember when he was very young, teaching him to volley and saying to him the whole time, you know, when it's below the level of the net, if you don't get it back behind, yeah. I'm going to go mad. Only told him once. Yeah. And if you can remember how Pat volleyed, nobody ever got a swing at the next one because he'd get it so deep in the corner behind some. Yeah. They had to lob. Yeah. And he never used to smash. That was, that was the end of the point. As it went in the air, I said, you know, and youngsters, as you probably remember, when the ball went in the air, I always used to tell you, say to yourself, thank you, sucker, my point. As soon as it went in the air, do you remember that? <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I remember it so well, Barkers, and there's, there's so many things, and this is one of the things that are, certainly as I take into my coaching that, that I've learned from you is you had so many things that stuck, you know, that stuck with the player because, because it was so clear. You know, so like back behind, back behind. You know, that was that was so ingrained in all of us that if we had a low volley, we went deep back behind. And if we had a smash, exactly that. And it was, you know, and I remember you always saying, if you make them lob, you've won the point. Perfect. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to make them lob you. You know, exactly. these, things, these things stick. So now, cash, cash against Lendl in the final, because I've heard a couple of stories on this, and, and you were... You, you said 65% first serve. If he serves at 65% first serves, he wins the match. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And he did. And uh, magic. He uh, served so well. Yeah. And the first volley was unbelievable. And uh, Lendl just got so frustrated trying to pass him and yeah. trying to lob him, yeah. which was virtually impossible. Yeah. And he just played so well. I mean, it was... An incredible feeling, yeah. but you never know. You never know what's going to happen till the fat lady sings. <laughs> you know, we've seen some many players lead two sets to love Wimbledon and lose. We've seen people have match balls lose. So you can't, you know, start your celebrations until no. it's actually no. shaken hands. Yeah, uh, just wonderful. Yeah, I know there's um. Judy Murray, there's a really good story about when Andy was playing against Djokovic in 2013 and he was two sets to love up. And there was a couple of um, 
a couple of film stars, Bradley Walsh and a couple of people that were in that area. And Judy Murray's mum was famous for making shortcake, you know, Scottish shortcake. And they got it out. They got the shortcake out and they were passing it around the box. And Judy turned to them and said, put the effing shortcake away. You know, this match is far from over. And, it, and, it, and, it, and it's exactly right. It's that kind of feeling, isn't it? That, you know, people that maybe don't know the game of tennis, they can start to relax. And it's actually the most dangerous time. It can be, you know, you can look down on the court and say to yourself, oh dear, I feel he's got this one. Playing so well. Yeah. The opposition's not doing anything really that can upset him. But then all of a sudden something goes wrong. Yeah. First serve percentage goes off. The uh, first volley has started to miss. The return's not going in. And all of a sudden there's a big change. Um, but you see that all the time. But yeah. you don't see it so much with the top 10. Yeah. Get down the list a little bit. You'll see guys throw matches away, sometimes because their head's not right. They can't, or they don't concentrate well enough. Yeah. That's a problem today. I've noticed that a lot of the younger players just can't, you know, get in blinkers. In other words, you put a horse in blinkers to make it race straight and concentrate on what it's doing. Some of the kids keep looking around all over the place and it doesn't take long to become distracted. Especially with you guys, as I remember, looking at all the girls that used to wander by and me, and me pointing back on the court and saying, get your mind back and your eyes back on the court. Lots of distractions. <laughs> I don't want you looking at, Will, I'll introduce you to all the girls after you've won the match, but not yet. <laughs> and I can imagine, but I can imagine with Cashy. I mean, that must have been that must have been a job for you as well. Hell, absolute hell! <laughs> I didn't know what to do. <laughs> They'd be queued up on the stairs. They'd be ringing through, and all sorts of problems. All sorts of problems. But you know what happens on the tour stays on the tour. <laughs> And, and also, but there wasn't mobile phones those days as well. I mean, no. nowadays with mobile phones, it's it's almost ten times worse. And, yes. and so, so Kashi, after after that, he didn't. That was the only Grand Slam that Kashi won, wasn't it? Yes, yes. And, and did he come close again? Well, he'd been runner-up twice in the Australian yeah. Open. You know, he made the three finals. Um, but he was so unlucky with his injuries. I mean, he copped some beauties. Uh, snapped Achilles tendon. Uh, then he, you know, he had back problems, which you wouldn't yeah. believe. He still has back problems. Um, yeah. Knee problems too. He wasn't very lucky, but he was built like a, yeah. you know, the proverbial shouse out the back. He was just, he was just so heavy yeah. muscle. And so strong and very quick. Yeah. Held the world 10 meter record for years. Right. And he was, you know, off the mark. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And I still remember we used to make you do the star run, you guys, trying to get you fast forward and fast backwards. Yeah. We had a couple who were quite quick and a couple who weren't that quick. Yeah. And trying to make them quicker was a nightmare for yeah. me, you know. And I, I'd say to Hack and I'd say that. Jimmy and Phil, come on, these guys, we've got to speed them up. Yeah, we've yeah. got to make them better athletes. Yeah. Otherwise, 
nothing was wrong about lasting matches. You were all very fit. Yeah. But this game revolves around, well, it's even worse today. Yeah. If you're not quick over the first four or five metres, sorry, Maury, you don't have many chances. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and then from your, your career after Kashi, because there was you, you then worked with other players before you moved to England. Leander Pears, is that correct? Yes, I did a little bit with Leander. And then um, they approached me to do the job in the UK. Yeah. And Pat wanted to give it away. He was pretty fed up at that time and he had yeah. a bad year the year after. And then I decided that, that I would do it. And you poor unfortunate guys copped me and got your backsides kicked every day of the week, which was very good for all of you. Yeah. Some of you were a little spoiled at home, so yeah. we had to change that very quickly. Yeah. And I think I was just the man to do it, but I had my Colonel Turner beside me all the time. Jimmy was magnificent. Absolutely. He was so tough, unbelievably tough. Yeah. And Phil was the opposite. He yeah. was soft as anything and I sat in the middle yeah. and I'll never forget I still talk about it if I ever give a talk to parents and, and kids and I'll talk about Jimmy one day I remember I had you all in the circle and I was talking about serving into the the body yeah. and how valuable it was and where they were likely to return the ball if yeah. you got served right yeah and somebody started to talk and uh, Jimmy went right off the air yeah. And he said, you want to know something? He said, if I'd have known all this stuff when I was your age, I could have been a much, much better player. Yeah. So if you don't shut up and listen, I'll smash this record over your head. <laughs> Get your head down, your bum up in the air and listen to everything he says yeah. because you're going to be doing it in a few minutes and if you don't do it well, I'll be after you. Yeah. you know? Boy, he was tough. And Phil would look around, look around. The boys were so scared they didn't know which way to turn. But Jimmy was great. Magnificent. No, I mean, I mean, it was. I mean, we had a. I spoke to. I spoke to Chinky on one on a podcast. Uh, Lee Childs, to those that are listening, a, a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, and the one thing talking to him, it brought back all of the feelings actually of like just how competitive the environment was, you know. And I think that was something that you guys obviously did an amazing job with. And, and looking back, I was definitely too soft at the time. You know, I had kind of, you know, I, I can reflect pretty honestly and my overarching memories are unbelievably good, but it, it, I wish that I'd known a bit more and I'd actually sucked a few more things up. But in terms of the cream rising to the top, I think it was, a, it was an unbelievable environment for that. And, and I remember like almost every session, was there was something on it and it was so competition like that you know and and nowadays and me and me and chinky spoke about this it's so much more difficult it feels nowadays to get that same feeling you know we were we were i remember being scared every time i went to volley because it was like this ball's just like flying <laughs> from all angles but it didn't half get you alert <laughs> yeah what you didn't realize was that um I would always have a go at the guys. Say we had eight guys on the court and we were really into it. And I'd be saying to the, the guy that was number eight or number seven, 
And I'd be saying, so Marty was number one. I'd be saying to them, I would really get into their ear and I would say all the time, I think you could be as good as Marty yeah. if work twice as hard as what you, you'll have to change your attitude. Yeah. You won't get anything out of it unless you give 110% yeah. every session. Have a look at Jimmy Connor's practice next time you go to Wimbledon yeah. and he will give everything he's got yeah. and you have to do the same. Otherwise, there yeah. won't be a future for you. Yeah. It is a tough game. Very, very tough. And you have millions of competitors. They're everywhere. So give your all. And I can remember even little things like getting on the bus, you'd all be elbowing one another to be on first. Little things at the back of the court, you'd be nudging one another when you went to pick up a ball. You'd bowl one another over. And I I would wink at Jimmy and say, this is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. They're into it today. And the competitive spirit that you all have, we wanted to make it, tougher and tougher and tougher. It's the only way. So if you didn't have that competitive spirit in you, at Bisham, you soon got it. (laughs) Believe you me, you got left behind if you didn't have it. You did. Yeah, no, it wasn't wasn't for the faint-hearted at all. And it was, and obviously, like I said, we're all like brothers now as well. You know, we're, we're all, all right, we don't see each other all the time, but we're all incredibly close. And and that was the that was the the feeling that it brought, and it was yeah almost at times like we were in 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 the army together, you know that we were going through some things together, and and and, and I I massively respect that, and and looking back, it's it's amazing what was created. What was what were some of the challenges for you and for the team that maybe we wouldn't have known about? Um, the challenges were. It was a big problem in that, you know, a couple of times I'd open my mouth to the press, whereas the British boys hadn't done much at all. Nobody in Britain had done anything in that point of time where we wanted an uprising of some very young players to improve dramatically very quickly. But I knew that couldn't be achieved, but I wanted that. So I thought, well, there's only one way to do it, and that's make them work so hard. But unfortunately then, you all started to sustain injuries because I was working yeah. too hard. Yeah. And no sooner I'd finished, Jimmy would take over and then Phil and we were, you guys were really, you had it poured into you. Yeah. You remember if you won a tournament of a weekend, quite often I'd give you the, the Monday off. And most Thursdays I gave you off to recuperate, have a rub, get into the gym, try and do things that would freshen you up because I knew Friday practice would have to be hard and then we'd go off to the tournament. So I had to make sure the whole time that every one of you was at your competitive best on Friday. So trying to find a way to get it right was very, very difficult. And I found that giving you a little bit of free time, you responded much better than me pushing and pushing and pushing. And uh, I realised that 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 wouldn't work. Yeah. And I started collecting my thoughts of the night time. I put them down on paper and say to myself, so-and-so, so-and-so saw, hack tomorrow, I need you at nine o'clock to start, or eight o'clock to start working on this yeah. soreness, which has come about through the tournament last weekend. Yeah. And you know, most of you guys were always in on the last day. I was always the last to leave because yeah. If it wasn't you and Dave winning the doubles, it'd be chinky and and uh, 
you know, Jimmy Nelson. And then, of course, we had Marty and Trotters. So we knew we'd win the doubles in the Leo. It was a group five, group four, group three, group two, group one, Never group remember. A. We were always in there in yeah. the final, one, one after the other. A lot of people have asked me why. I said, well, we only had the four courts and quite often we only had two because yeah. the girls were there also. Yeah. So we had to play a lot of doubles and I made the doubles competition so tough. It wasn't yeah, even yeah. funny. Remember the game I played when one of you had to stand by the net and whoever made the mistake had to drop it. Yeah, 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 <laughs> and you were going to kill somebody with a racket on the way out. <laughs> and I was the arbitrator. I decided who set up the bad shot yeah, to have it killed. <laughs> and no, I didn't. It wasn't my fault. That's all I got the whole time. <laughs> Shut up and get out here. Yeah. <laughs> you remember that? You uh, no, completely, kill. completely. <laughs> it was it was such a it was, it was just it was non-stop. I mean out the football matches warming up ready for before you know, we play football to warm up and the competition in the football was just like incredible. The air hockey no the hockey. I remember um the hockey at the time. And um, I was I was going out with Tilly at the time, and I remember she was annoyed with me for something, and she smacked me with the hockey stick <laughs> just, before, <laughs> just before just before we went on the court. <laughs> it was like it was a it was it was absolutely constant. But again, what what amazing results, you know? As well, if we if we look at it, Marty Lee World Junior Number One, you know, Trotters and Marty winning winning Wimbledon. Trotters and Dave winning, <laughs> winning Australian Open. Chinky and ne Chinky and Nels winning U.S. Open. Dicko beating Federer. Late, you, you know the the results. The results from everybody, you know, were really incredible. You know, and, and it's for, for me, they should have been giving you a knighthood for for what you did in British tennis. But but it, it didn't seem like it quite ended like that. No, well. That's where I was, uh, well, Chinky was unlucky. I thought that without doubt, I could get Chinky in the top one, you yeah. know, the top 100, yeah. without a great effort. Yeah. And for some unknown reason, uh, Tony Ann sent me some film and I said, who's fiddled with his serve? Who's fiddled with the biggest forehand in the business? His yeah. serve and forehand were the equal of anybody else in the world. Incredible. Unbelievable. And Jimmy and I and Phil worked so hard on the backhand where it became quite confident it wasn't as weak as because people hammered it. They were so scared, scared of the forehand that yeah. it became quite solid. And yeah. he didn't miss it. He returned quite well off it. Yeah. Didn't try to do too much. Made them play. Waited for the short ball. Dispatched it immediately. So when I finished and went home and the backstabbers got into me, you know, a lot of people remember all the jealousies from of the Bisham boys from some yeah. people, some other coaches, which wasn't fair. No. I don't mind, you know, anybody could stab me in the back or anybody can say anything about me. It's just water off a duck's back. Yeah. But when they started having a go at your guys, yeah. I got a little bit nasty. You know, I said, what do you expect them to do? I said, I've just about won everything. We can't win anymore. Yeah. And uh, you want to pick, 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 pick. All right, they're the cream of the crop. They deserve to be there. They've all won nationals every, you know, Bisham yeah. boys have won them every year. We've never let anybody have a look in. So you can't say that money spent on the Bisham boy, boys has ever been wasted. It was never wasted. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I remember, I remember Barkers and, and I, 
have to say a big thank you to you as well because you recognized what I probably needed at that time. And, you know, I remember you saying to me, look, the US college is on the table and, you know, you you brought that to my attention, which which was absolutely the best thing for me to do at that time. And And I remember coming back after one year of being out in the US and they used to have, at that point, they'd put pictures up of the of, of all of us. And, the, and, and I remember walking, because sometimes when you're in the bubble, you don't quite appreciate it, what's, what's happening. And I remember walking along, and every single one of us that had been in the top 10 of the world in singles or doubles, and every single one of us, I think, had been in the top 60 in the world in juniors in, in singles. And people can say all they want about picking the cream however for years and years people have picked the cream and they haven't then gone on to have those type of results and and I guess the the bit I'd love to hear your thoughts on this there was then only Marty that went on to be a top 100 ATP player you know from such amazing successful junior careers how did that make you feel you know that maybe the job couldn't couldn't be finished off with you talk about chinky but you know dicko you know there's so many that you know were potentially going to be at least top 180 p players well so many got injured i blame myself a lot for that i mean trotter's got that many injuries yeah. marty had you know the trouble with his groin i think that might have come from too many tackles you know <laughs> before we went out to play tennis yeah but they were annoying. I mean, we'd just get somebody really firing and that would happen. But do you remember, Marty actually got knocked back by the people who were looking after junior tennis before me. Yeah. And I took one look at him and I said, this left-hander is very young, but by gee, he's got some natural talent. Yeah. I think we can make use of that. I mean, a few years later, here he is number one in the world and winning tournaments. How could anybody not pick the talent that he had. How could anybody not see? And this, this is the crucial thing. In tennis, you've got to know your kids. You've yeah. got to know what they're all about. And you know, sometimes today I'll be talking to coaches and I said, don't worry about it. I said, the first 30 years are, is the, definitely the hardest. And they look at me stupefied <laughs> and I say, well, it takes a long time. I've been coaching for just on 60 years and I've still got a lot to learn. Believe yeah. you me, the game changes every day. Absolutely. And the guy that thinks he knows it all, he's got no future at all. Yeah. You've got to look at film. You've got to study this player. You've got to study that player. Yeah. You've got to look at a guy and say, what's he got that's brought him into the top 10 so quickly? I remember him as a junior. He wasn't that great, but all of a sudden, He's developed something and matured so much. And this is something we forget about. Boys grow up very quickly. Um, they go from boys to men yeah. at certain stages of their life. And when they're quite manly and they want to put in and they want to do the hard work, they can end up devastating. So, uh, but you've got to be able to do the work. Yeah. I have to mention Ben Riley. And I'm just going to leave the floor to you. Ben, ben right, I mean, he was so unique and is oh. so unique. Well, my first memory was at Peter Airport where he started to sing. 
you know, people were actually missing their plane on purpose to listen to it. It was absolutely unbelievable. He had the most beautiful singing voice. He was so talented, but very talented in the wrong way too. Um, like turning out the lights, the indoor tennis when we were in, oh, I can't remember which country, but he turned them out and we couldn't get them back on. Um, and one day I, uh, I made him uh, go back to his room and stay there. He'd been a naughty boy. So I went up into the Abbey to see him and see what he'd been up to. And he'd drawn a guy on a motorbike. It was the most amazing drawing I've ever seen in my life. And I said, you didn't do that, did you? I, you know, I was an artist. He did. He, yeah. he had drawings there. I couldn't believe them. They were so good. And yeah. I said, where did you get this artistic talent from? Where did you get the singing voice from? Where have you got... Can you apply the same talent to your tennis every day when you're out on the court? Because he's... One thing he loved, you know, remember me, I was pretty bandy-legged and his one love was to put, I'd go goalie and he'd <laughs> score a goal between my legs. Yeah. That made his day. <laughs> yeah. What a trick. What a trick he was. And did he take some handling? I mean, honestly, you know, five minutes with all the other boys, I'd have to spend 50 minutes with Ryby. Yeah. But deep down underneath it all, he wasn't a bad guy. He was, he had something special. He did. But I couldn't extract all of that special stuff he had. Yeah. And I couldn't put it into his tennis. But he could play. He was very clever. Yeah. Especially the one between the legs, around the back at the wrong yeah. time. Yeah. Where you wanted to go out on the court and hit him over the head with something. You know? <laughs> but he was a fascinating human being, believe you me. I used to, um, I used to remember you chasing him and <laughs> just chasing him, just, like run, just running after him, trying to get, trying to get a hold of him with him going, yay, 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 <laughs> on him and he's like run, running away. He's a certain character. And, and the, ne the, next, the next person I want to men mention here, you know, they always say behind every great man is a great woman, you know, and she certainly was that, you know, our, our de dear Jackie that we all love so much, you know, and I think, you know, certainly from a personal point of view, the Bisham years wouldn't have been the same without having our second mum there who, who could, you know, take care of us and, and, and just, just be there, just be that, that person. You know, and, and I guess my, my question is general, but then also specific to, to dear Jackie. How, how important is it to a, to a coach like yourself who's, who's travelled the world, work, worked with some of the best players in the world, that you have that understanding wife next to you throughout the journey? I was very lucky, Dan. She was yeah. one in a million. Yeah, I was. mean, it didn't matter what I did. Um, she would, if I came in and sat down, she'd turn around and say to me, get out back onto that court. We need another champion. We need the money. <laughs> but... Yeah. With all of you boys, she was like uh, this big protective blanket around you. Yeah. You know what I mean? If anybody picked on you, look out. Yeah. If you had trouble with anything, schoolwork, falling behind with something, she'd say, um, I'm bringing so-and-so home this weekend. I'm going to catch up with his maths or I'm going to catch up with that, blah, blah, blah. She was like a school teacher and a mum. Yeah. And she could do anything. She was such a clever lady. But with me, um, I could virtually never do any wrong because I had to work so hard. We sort of had a, uh, 
beautiful, loving relationship, but we spent a lot of time apart and uh, was just so good when she came to England and uh, lived with us the whole time. And she was great with anybody that visited. Remember the place in uh, just down the road from Bisham where we lived and the fun we had there. Um, Everybody was welcome. Tiny place, but it was so full at times it wasn't even funny. The parties were great and we celebrated. Um, But Jackie had a way about her with the boys. She could pick them from a mile off if they were troubled about something. And she'd say to me, Ian, uh, please, uh, you've been a little tough on so-and-so this week. Do you think you can calm it down a little bit? And I would say my answer was always, one bad apple spoils the barrel. I cannot afford to have somebody undermining everybody else or star or me or anybody. They all have to toe the line. And she would just give me a little warning and she'd say to me then, he's coming home at the weekend to stay with us while I help him. I'd like, I'll leave you alone and you can have a little talk about the bad apple in the barrel. And uh, she was marvellous. She'd get out of the boys what she really wanted to know. She could delve much deeper because... I had to look after the lot. She could look after one at a time. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, Jimmy would say, I know what I should have, especially today he got his nose broken playing football. Remember that? <laughs> Jimmy was so tough and we were all tough. We all had this, I think we were crazy. You know, some of the things we did were unbelievable. We were not going to take a no from anybody. Yeah. And that's how you have to be in this game. Yeah. You don't accept a no. You don't yeah. accept a negative. Everything yeah. has to be positive and you have to believe in yourself. Yeah. And I would spend most of the time with Jackie's help trying to build you all up, trying to make you believe that you could be much better than what you were. Yeah. It works, believe you me. I mean, yeah. I saw some performances which were quite scary from all the Bisham boys. Yeah. And uh, they looked like they were going to tear the tennis world down at one stage, but yeah. I'm afraid... Nearly everybody copped a bad injury at some stage. But that was the overwork and the changing of courts. And I think this has been the biggest problem. People are asking me why there's so many bad backs. Well, I don't know how the guys didn't all break down at Bisham when we went from the clay to the fast surface, which you couldn't slide on. It was dangerous. But we got a lot of broken metatarsals and a few sore knees and our staff was wonderful. the recuperation was amazing and most of of you were at that age where you'd snap back very quickly and be at your best because even though you were still hurting you didn't want to miss out nobody wanted to practice less than the other guys yeah and even when i tried to stop you all from going too far there was no way known i could stop you you used to lie to me like lying hounds you'd say to me no i'm a hundred percent and you could hardly walk or run, you know, yeah. hobbling around. But yeah. you weren't going to miss out. Yeah. That was great. That made everybody tougher still. Definitely. Because I thought a bit of, a few of you were pretty soft. And if it hadn't have been for the Definitely. football, you know, that helped dramatically. That's yeah. why I let it go. Because yeah. I thought, this is, I'd say to Jimmy, I don't want them playing football because they're going to kill one another or get a bad injury. Yeah. But what it's achieving is this super toughness yeah. and they're all getting tough. They're all going in. Nobody's scared yeah, yeah. except a few times I saw Marty Lee leaning on the goalpost and just get here. <laughs> well, I remember <laughs> I, I turned 18 
I turned eighteen, and we might have um, we might have sneaked out and had a couple of a couple of shandies the, the night I turned eighteen. But and and I actually I managed to have a bit of a fall at the Delgado's house. I fell out of a car and I banged my head and cut it a bit. And I woke up in the morning and the boys had just put a sock on my on my. They couldn't find a bandage, so they just stuck a sock on my eye. But I remember, I remember waking up. We were on court at eight thirty in the morning. And again, exactly that was there wasn't a thought that I'm going to make an excuse to miss practice and I've got a headache and I can't do it. And I remember then walking to the courts, feeling a poor. This is I'm not feeling great. And and I walked past Derek Bone on the way to the courts, and he said, "Oh, happy 18th birthday yesterday for yesterday, Dan. Oh, and what's that cut above your eye?" And I said, oh, Derek, that somebody banged a door off me yesterday. God, stupid, you know. <laughs> but then still walked on court and still still was ready to give our best, you know. So the way that that culture was set, and, and I think there is life after playing tennis. And if we take all of, all of the boys are still very heavily involved in tennis, then I think that's, that's an amazing reflection of what you guys did during that time as well. Actually, I'm very proud of the boys because when I... Think back over the years, um, everybody seems to have been very successful, and I love that idea. And your camaraderie was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, if somebody came along and had a shot at one of the Bisham boys, yeah. and one of them was within earshot, yeah. they got a mouthful, or they would yeah. have got a bunch of five. Okay. And that's that was great because I think you all formed a, a nice type of security for one another. Definitely. I think when I you know, I might be watching you down on court 12 and somebody was playing on court 25 and I'd say to somebody else, get down there quickly, cheer him on, get back to me, tell me the score yeah. and find out if any of the other boys are in trouble and I'll get there as quickly as I can or Jimmy will or Phil will. We've got to have somebody supporting yeah. because nobody outside supports the No, they didn't. <laughs> But so we had to stick together. We had no choice. But the security for one, all of you, by one another, was fantastic. And that's why I think you've remained such great friends many, many years later. I agree. So amazing memories, Barkers. That what's, what's then happened next? So you, you've gone back to Australia. And I suppose the next, the next phase of your life, I'm sure there's lots of people out there that have always wondered you know, what this godfather of tennis who's come in and made such an amazing difference in the UK has then gone back. So can you give us a little um, update on what's been happening in the last 15, 20 years? Well, I was hell-bent hell bent on uh, producing the national champion as soon as I could, which I was able to do. I don't know if you remember um, a boy I brought across to England. He won... Andrew Thomas, which yeah. he was a freak. Yeah. And he won the nationals, winning the final love and love. Yeah. Uh, it was amazing. His sponsors would turn up. They were half an hour late and the match was all over. Right. And that's how good he was. Yeah. He won, uh, you know, the big lead-in tournament to Tarbs in England. Then he won Tarbs. Yeah. He'd already won uh, Orange Bowl, which was incredible. Yeah. And the way he belted all those people was incredible and I thought this is another Pat Cash but unfortunately his mum and dad separated and he disappeared off the face of the earth didn't go on with it 
But then, you know, one door closes, another door opens. So two years later, I produced another one who won nationals, then another one. And I hadn't lost my touch. But having only a handful, you know, I had to pick right. If I didn't pick right, it would be a lot of hard work and uh, nothing at the end of it. But I was still able to do it and still trying like trying like hell to find somebody that yeah. could possibly make it, another Pat Cash. I've had a lot of National 12 winners and one after the other and people still ask me that question, which you asked me, what was the secret, you know? And I yeah. said, well, my kids are the only one that can defend, you know, they know what to do. The only ones that really have a great slice, the only ones that, yeah. who know how to turn defence into offence. Yeah. who play like 14-year-olders instead of 12-year-olders. That's what you've got to have. Yeah. And the maturity has to be so quick. And you've got to work, have them work so hard, and you've got to have very understanding parents yeah. who want them to be successful but won't interfere too much. Yeah. So I've had a lot of luck. Um, health, you know, pretty good. A uh, couple of little niggles here and there. But when you get to your 80s, uh, you've got to expect that. You yeah. can't go forever. Body parts wear out, I think. That's the problem. <laughs> After you've been hitting tennis balls all day long for 60 years, it's, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. So a few of the parts, the body parts, need an oil and grease change. You know, they, they're getting a bit creaky. <laughs> and how's, and how's, the, how's the famous Barker's lob? You still got the lob in the locker? Well, what happens is the boys, when they come along, Say it's a new guy come along. Uh, I have an Indian boy, which I'm teaching at the moment. And one of the boys said, don't get too close because nine out of 10 times he'll hit the line with the lob. <laughs> and the first, very first time he came in, straight over the head on the line, he just hurled his racket into the chair on the side and said, I thought they were giving me rubbish. <laughs> True. <laughs> How do you do that? I said, 60 years of practice, you know. <laughs> and there it is. The legend is then set. That's it. He's, he's done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> carries on. Carries on. But, you know, you don't see it today. You don't see guys that have the great lob both sides where they get a ball which is quite deep. Guys smash so well because they're so tall. But they don't read when they get in so close. Yeah. And it's because they don't go in themselves, you know, that they're, yeah. they're not used to seeing what happens. But yeah, yeah. it's amazing if you get the lob over only once. You only need to do it once. It's like the drop shot. If you don't play the lob, you'll never read it. If you don't play the drop shot, you'll never read it. Yeah, so yeah. if you don't have both of those shots, you're yeah. limited. You might not win the point, but by God, next time they come in, you've opened up the angles because yeah. you've got the lob over once. So, you know, both are on. Everything's on if you get them, you know, hanging back that little bit yeah. and created the angles. And if you don't play the drop shot, now and again, you might only play one a match. That's enough. Yeah, yeah. That'll get them running forward and then you'll be able to pass easily, you know. Yeah. Um, you've got to be able to play every shot in the book. That's why I always, with Yvonne Lendl, could never read Pat's log. The backhand lob, if you remember, was unbelievable. <laughs> He'd just pop it over. And I used to go like this to Lendl, you know, rub the neck and say, <laughs> that's watching the lob go up. Um, 
But to have every shot in the book yeah. and for the opposition not to know what was coming next, that's the secret. It's a bit difficult when you play the guy six times and he's yeah. seen what you can do. And today we have so much information. It's unbelievable. Yeah. The recordings of uh, matches, you can go back 30, 40 years, see how they played, what the difference was between, say, 1960 and 2020. It's amazing to follow the trends yeah. along the lines of uh, the big, big guy hitting it so hard today. Yeah, but even but I, when I spoke to Trotters yesterday, we were talking about that because actually to, tomorrow I'm, I'm, I've got Craig O'Shaughnessy who, on, the, on the podcast who's obviously got all the data, all the, all the, all the statistics. And when we talked, which it's great, and, the, and obviously the game's changed because you can find out so much now. However, what you can't ever track is, is how a, a guy or a girl performs in that moment <laughs> and how they feel how they feel a situation, how they, you know, have the ability to just, okay, they've been using the wide serve on a big point, but they just feel that they know that that player's going wide and then they, they have the ability to change the tee or, you know, whatever it might be. You know, these are kind of the, the bits that no statistics can ever, can ever get to that, that's so beautiful about our sport, really. Yes, it's quite unique because I used to sit in the stand when Pat, you know, the player that watching the match before the winner had to play Pat and I would watch their ball toss to see how different it was and I've always believed you know statistics do not show generally speaking the first shot what set up the point yeah. it'll tell you show you the last couple or yeah. the end point it'll tell you that but it never shows the hard work somebody did to set it up yeah, yeah. and today sometimes you get a lot of long rallies, but you can always rest assured that it started somewhere where this player made the guy run like crazy. Yeah. And I've always been a great believer that, you know, you never interfere with somebody's great shot. When you watch them and they keep winning at the point with this one certain shot and it doesn't look great, but by God, it's effective. And then the coach comes along and wants to change it. Yeah. And I, I just can't believe it yeah. because it doesn't look classical. Yeah. And I'm going, why would you want to change that? I yeah. said, it's so special. Yeah. You watch every ball that's short, he'll get this angle on his forehand so acutely that yeah. if he doesn't put it away the first time, it might certainly go the second. Yeah, yeah. And to muck around with somebody's, not, not watch them play matches, not yeah. watch and write down where, I mean, I don't take that many stats. I will on first serve and I do a lot of work on the percentages. You yeah. know, if you don't serve well and yeah. your first serve percentage is down, I will go nuts at you. Yeah. It's a simple reason. I don't care if you slow it down and get it in. It's still a first serve. Yeah. And they're not going to pay out on your first serve the same as they will with the second. These things are unbelievably important yeah. for the guys of today. Some of them want to just serve aces the whole time. You get a young guy... Oh, no, I've got a servant. What? What's wrong with serving into the body? What's wrong with mixing it up? What's wrong with giving him three different serves? Mix it up. Yeah. Don't have him guessing the whole time. Yeah. Get in every now and again. Say you're 30 love up, serve volley. Do something different. Then they don't know what to expect next. Don't stand back there doing exactly the same thing. 
time after time after time again. Not only that, I hate watching. It's boring. <laughs> Do something different. Yeah. Use your imagination. Yeah. Try everything. Yeah. While you're young, experiment. Go for it. Have fun. Great, Barkers. I could speak tennis with you all day, Barkers. It's so it's so lovely to to be chatting to you. Um, what? But I, I have. I swear, I'm gonna have to bring it to a, to a bit of a close because I'm conscious of your time. It must be your bedtime pretty soon over there in Australia. But if you could give yourself some advice now that you know what you know, when you were a 30 year old coach, what would it be? Don't push them so hard. Okay. Yeah. I'm a, I was notorious in your days for, and I knew it, but yeah. you guys, a lot of the British boys were a long way behind. And yeah. uh, I thought the only way to catch up is by a superhuman effort from all of you. But what I didn't realise that the harder I pushed, the more injuries would come about. So I had yeah. to find a method by which I could push but not push too hard. Very good. And we've got a little, as, tr as tradition with our Control the Coronables podcast, we've got a little quick fire round. But as I've got you, Barkers, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go traditional. So what we have, we have an Ian Barclay quick fire round where I'm going to say one of your sayings or something that's words associated with you. And you're going to give our listeners a little um, synopsis of what that is. So okay. are you ready? Yep. So the, fir the first one, loose as a goose. <laughs> yes, some of you used to get up so tight, especially in matches when it got very, very important. And I would also say at the end of that, you know, if I stuck a pin in you, you'd blow up all over the UK. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was out by a bee's D. <laughs> that one was a beauty because it's put into your head that you were playing great you just had to bring it back for bees d that's all and you'd win every point they can use their imagination on what a bees d is yes um, he's got netitis <laughs> remember i threatened you all with an injection and it was actually a i had a the injection was for horses, really. It was a huge one. It had a antibiotic in it, which was uh, would cure netitis. And I used to threaten all of you: if you hit the net again, you are going to get this in your backside. This is the biggest injection you've ever seen. And I know all of you hate injections, so be careful. <laughs> all of a sudden, everybody started hitting the ball six meters out. <laughs> <laughs> Their heart is as big as a pea. <laughs> when guys, which was very, very seldom, um, gave up, you know, things didn't go right and something upset them. And when they came off, I would tell them straight to their face. I'd take them away from everybody and I'd give it to them. And I'd say, look, when you look in the mirror after the match, say you've had your shower and you go and do your hair and you look in the mirror, did you say you were proud of yourself? I would have said, you should have said, you're a little so-and-so because yeah. you gave up. Ambition boys don't give up yeah. no matter what happens. If your leg's broken, you don't give yeah. up. You stay yeah. out there no matter what happens. 
Um, not a saying, but a word, horse bite. <laughs> <laughs> when the boys got out of hand, trotters mainly, I used to grab him and bite, grab it, grab a bit of flesh and squeeze it as hard as I could till he screamed, or the boys screamed, because they'd done something very bad. And I only did it, I only applied the horse bite when they'd been very, very naughty. And Jackie used to go mad at me because there'd be a bruise on their leg when they came in the next day. <laughs> and somebody would say, oh, Trotters, I see you've had Barker's horse bite. <laughs> um, I, I haven't missed one of those since 1954. <laughs> <laughs> They'd have an easy smash on the net or something like that, or an easy volley. And instead of just, you know, neatly putting it away, oh no, they had to belt it at a million miles an hour to make sure. And of course, either hit the net or the back fence. And I would say, you never miss that shot. And I haven't missed one in all those years. That's why, you know, the old saying is, a lot of my mates would say, he couldn't knock a bantam off a fence, meaning that I had no power, you know? <laughs> I couldn't knock a bird off a fence. Anyway, I would say to the boys, if you hit it in the right place, it won't come back, believe you me. If you know how to play, you know the dimensions of the court. And the boys used to get mad with me. You know? <laughs> and, and, and the last one, and, and I think for me, this is the, um, this is the most famous one that, that rings in my head, is, Jesus, Marty, not in the net. <laughs> <laughs> Marty used to love his short cross-court forehand, didn't he? He used yeah. to absolutely love it. And he had days when he clipped the top of the net or hit the net, and I used to go berserk. And, <laughs> Come on, Marty. Gee, Marty, what are you doing? That's three in this set. We've only played four games. What are you doing? Get it up and down abrupt, more abruptly. Get a bit more top on. Get round the ball. Make sure. Make sure, Marty. And if he hit another one, oh, boy, I was down that end very quickly, pulled him aside and said, no, 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 no. <laughs> Barkers, you I can't tell you how amazing it is to speak to you. Um, I was fortunate enough to see you last year at Wimbledon as well, which which was amazing. But I know that there's there's a lot of anticipation in the in the tennis world for people to hear from you and I know that people will be delighted. The impact that you've had on me personally is is unbelievable. You know, it really is. And I want to say a big, big thank you for that. Um, I wish I'd been more grateful at the time, but I can assure you with yourself, Jimmy and Phil and everybody at Bisham, you know, there's a massive heartfelt th thanks for everything that you guys did. And I, and I know there's thousands and thousands of people in the world that would like to say the same. So, so a big thank you. You're an absolute legend of the game. Um, you know, and it's amazing to see that you've still got the same enthusiasm that you have, and I'm sure you will do for years to come. So thank you very much, Parkers. Thanks, Dan. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Ian Barclay, for, for your time, for your, for your passion, for your commitment, and for everything that you've done in the sport of tennis and for sharing that with ourselves and our viewers. Thank you to those that continue to support the podcast. A big thanks for myself and John. 
uh, please do comment, review, like, share, all of these things that we're, we're learning about on the podcast to get the word out there in, and get the podcast into more people's hands. Everybody deserves to listen to these amazing guests. If you're new to the show and it's the first one you've listened to, a big welcome and, and thank you for for listening and choosing Control of Coronables. We do have lots more exciting guests to come. Stay tuned, look out for them. And everyone, I hope everyone's well. My name's Dan Kiernan, my co-host John McGann. We are Control the Coronables. Thank you.